From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's 2021, and there's a lot from 2020 we'd rather not repeat. One thing that will continue, The Kitchen Shelf, our series about old Colorado cookbooks. We started in the San Luis Valley with nostalgic recipes for sopapillas and bizcochitos. Because it's going home. So many people had to leave the valley for generations, for work, for education, uh, like to survive. Today, we listen back to these conversations about food and place and memory. A bear broke into the car and ate what was left of the challah. Plus, recipes from nurses on the plains and from one of the state's oldest black churches. And for dessert, potatoes? I thought that the brownies would be a little bit more fudge-like, a little bit more chewy, and it's really a little bit more cake-like. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And on this first day of 2021, I have an admission. I don't really cook or bake, save for waffles in my waffle iron and the occasional shepherd's pie. But I certainly love to eat, and I love the stories that come with food, the memories that rush in when I think of my mom's Swiss steak or coffee souffle. It's why in 2020, we created a series called The Kitchen Shelf, in which Coloradans dust off old community cookbooks and share the culinary treasures inside. Think the spiral-bound cookbooks produced by schools and civic clubs and hospital auxiliaries. The series will carry on into 2021, and today we dedicate the show to our favorite kitchen shelf segments so far. The whole shebang started around this time a year ago, with a story of a Christmas gift that has kept on giving. It came from a white elephant exchange. You know, it's supposed to be like funny prank things, stuff you've pulled out from storage. And so it was kind of a joke about who got it. It is a cookbook, and that voice is Roz Gallegos. She's an art teacher in Colorado Springs, but she grew up in the San Luis Valley, where this cookbook comes from. It's titled Favorite Recipes from Antonito, as in the town of 780 people in southern Colorado. The cookbook was published by the Antonito High School class of 1986, apparently to raise money for a school trip. And then it's dedicated to all our parents throughout our school years. We have many memories of moments shared with you during family meals. We thank you for taking care, supporting, and loving us. Signed, the class of 1986. Gallegos didn't attend Antonito High. She grew up on a ranch not too far away, though, and somehow the cookbook found its way to her family. In it are many different recipes for the same dish, a dessert, actually, a cookie called a bizcochito. Seven recipes. It's not just one. It's seven. So seven different families chiming in about bizcochitos. And if you don't know what a bizcochito is? It's kind of like if a snickerdoodle had anise. But it's so much more refined than a snickerdoodle. It's cinnamon, sugary, anise, shortbready. This is the cookie you have 
at a wedding. This is the cookie you have at a funeral, at a graduation. This is the cookie you have to celebrate the birth of Christ. <laughs> this is the cookie. Gallegos posted a picture of this cookbook to a Facebook page called Forgotten Southern Colorado, where 12,000 or so members share memories of communities like Alamosa, Conejos, Center, and of course, Antonito. And her post about the cookbook exploded. People are apparently hungry for food that reminds them of a specific time and place. Because it's going home. So many people had to leave the valley for generations, for work, for education, uh, like to survive. And now that we have social media, we're connected again. And so when we bring these things up, it's you're going home through your food. You're connecting with like, oh, you're so-and-so's cousin. And oh, you were at that funeral. And oh, my gosh, remember this cake Miss Salazar made? And it's going home. Gallegos and her family have already tried the two recipes for sopapillas, the fried pastry. One is described as never fail. So, of course, you got to try those because it's a no fail. <laughs> and then I tried another one. And so it was like a taste-a-thon, like, are we trying uh, Mrs. Salazar's sopapillas or are we trying um, Mrs. De Herrera's sopapillas? It was, you know, because it's a whole family thing and, uh, and adjusted for altitude. And so we tried those and it was a... A tie. We couldn't decide whose were better. There's also a recipe for taco salad with French dressing and flavored Doritos. But it's really the desserts Roz Gallegos is taken by, like the piñon puffs, a pine nut sweet treat. Yes, but most of the pine nuts you get in bulk now are from China. And so if you were to get them locally, they are very seasonal. You do not get pine nuts every year. So this year they were in. Um, so everybody was chasing the piñon. Like you could not get piñon this side of La Vida Pass. But inside the valley, they had a bumper crop. So it was great to see a recipe for piñon puffs, which is cookies. So I'm really excited to do that because I, in the family, I'm the baker Ross Gallegos of Colorado Springs sharing the bounty of a 1986 cookbook called Favorite Recipes from Antonito. It was a white elephant Christmas gift. At CPR.org, we've posted recipes for piñon puffs, that taco salad I mentioned, one of the seven bizcochito recipes, and, of course, one family sopapillas. They smell like mama's bread. On a warm spring day, the scent will linger in the air Like when you're cutting hay And the taste, my friend, is without a doubt Just like an angel's kiss, it melts in your mouth Given the times, it seemed fitting to highlight recipes from healthcare workers. A collection of successful operations in the kitchen, KCCMH. And uh, what is KCCMH? Kit Carson County Memorial Hospital. This cookbook is from the early 1990s, and you heard Janice Palter there. She lives in Greeley, but grew up in First View, Colorado, then Stratton, close to the Kansas border. And her mother and sister were nurses at the hospital in Burlington, Colorado. As a fundraiser, the hospital assembled this cookbook filled with local recipes. And I mean filled. It's giant. Oh, gosh, it's probably a good three inches thick. I mean, it's almost like the size of a Betty Crocker cookbook that you would get from the store. You know, it, it was it's huge. <laughs> and anything you could possibly imagine is in there. How many pages? Oh, I don't. 
over 300. But when I got married, I did not know how to cook. And my sister, she's a nurse, and she was one that was selling me this book. I thought, well, heck, I'm, you know, got to support the hospital. So I'm looking through it, and I'm like, man, I can do these. (laughs) And they were, yeah, pretty easy stuff, and I enjoyed doing it. The family would eat it. That's a big thing. (laughs) (laughs) So this book taught you to cook. Yes, it did. Oh, definitely. Janice Palter calls the recipes no-nonsense, which also kind of describes her mother, again, who was also a nurse. She was no-nonsense. We lived out in the middle of nowhere. She made do. You just couldn't run down the street to go get whatever. We had all our own milk. We had our own garden, beef, everything. And that's the way a lot of them were out there. And that's how they cooked. You know, you cook with what you have on hand because you just can't run to the store. And generally, the store didn't have anything real fancy. So these are pretty basic recipes with nothing fancy, no nonsense. It's like you get your dinner on in less than a half an hour because you got a hungry family to feed. And that dinner often included one key ingredient. Ground beef. A lot of ground beef. You can do about 101 things with ground beef, and they have them all. (laughs) And that reflects the area too, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Very... Very heavy on the beef. (laughs) A meat and potatoes kind of book. And it's a potato recipe Janice points me to. Let me find it here. Okay, so brown potatoes, they're medium-sized peeled new potatoes. I just use regular potatoes. Salt, celery salt, paprika, butter, and chopped parsley. There's not even how much to put of everything. It's just like you cut up how much you need and just put on the seasonings as much as you need. Then you just... Bake it in a moderate oven, 350 degrees, for about 35 minutes. And then it browns real nice. And yeah, it's it's really good eating. We've posted this no-nonsense potato recipe to CPR.org. So all the recipes were contributed by the community or just by the hospital community or what? I think it's pretty much just the hospital community. Not only the nurses. I don't know if I saw too many doctors. They didn't have too many doctors out there <laughs> at the time. They do now, but not so much then. But like uh, the maintenance person, the clerks, the ward clerks, the office people. So what about Janice's mom? What did the no-nonsense nurse contribute to this, quote, collection of successful operations in the kitchen? Her cake recipe in there. It's the Red Devil's Food chocolate mahogany cake, something like it's got a long name. Old-fashioned mahogany Red Devil's Food cake. Have you made it? Oh, yeah, that is my go-to cake. And a funny story, this is the very first cake I ever made. When I was a kid, I was hungry, and, you know, I feel like there's nothing in the house to eat. And Mom says, well, make this cake. It's fail-proof. Even you can do it. And I've, I've never cooked, so I made it. And it tasted great, but it just didn't look right. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what I did. And I told mom, I, I made it exactly like that recipe said. I'd say probably almost 30 years later, my sister writes a letter to everyone and she goes, I figured out what Janice did to that cake. <laughs> I had put baking powder instead of baking soda. <laughs> and it made it, it made it a pound cake instead of a regular cake. So I have made this cake, I don't know how many times, and there has never been a time when I have made it where someone hasn't commented how good it was. And I've made it for 35 years now. (laughs) Does it remind you of your mom? 
Oh, totally, totally. And it was her mom's recipe. So that was that's pretty special. What was your mom like? Oh, my mom is just, she's the most generous person I've ever known. She was a very good nurse. And that's why my sister became a nurse, because of the example of my mom. And I, I don't know a more honest person or a more generous person than my mother. Another reason this cookbook means so much to Janice? My mom didn't have a whole lot of recipes written down, and we tried to get her to write things down. And it's kind of like one of those, oh, well, you put this in, you put this in. She never said how much and how much it was going to make. And I know she must have had a recipe box somewhere, but I don't know where it is. That is Janice Palter of Greeley. She shared the Kit Carson County Memorial Hospital cookbook called A Collection of Successful Operations in the Kitchen. Again, recipes at CPR.org. A special show today highlights from our series, The Kitchen Shelf. Coloradans dig out their favorite community cookbooks, and this next one comes from a church. So I have a cookbook called Our Favorite Recipes by the Hospitality Club of my church, Campbell Chapel African Methodist Episcopal Church. That is Adrian Miller, a voice you may have heard on the show recently in a different capacity. He's head of the Colorado Council of Churches, which works on justice issues. But Miller is also a food writer known as the Soul Food Scholar. And when we asked him to pick a Colorado cookbook that's a staple in his kitchen, he didn't blink. It was going to be this 1984 beauty. Again, our favorite recipes from his AME church. This is the church you grew up in, is that true? Yes, absolutely. In Denver, and describe it for us. It's a traditionally black church on the corner of Humboldt and 22nd Avenues, and so it's uh, in the Five Points neighborhood, and just a wonderful church that I've been a part of all my life. A recipe from Miller's own family is in the book, a lemon icebox pie. We'll leave that for just a little later. No eating dessert first. We'll start with greens. In African-American cuisine, and similarly with Southern food, greens are often seasoned with smoked meat. You can use any greens, collard, kale, mustard, turnip, uh, and then you add some smoked ham hocks, and then some onion, garlic, and some red pepper. And you essentially just kind of stew those all together. The recipe was contributed by a woman named Beverly Habersham, who is the wife of my longtime childhood pastor. It just adds more meaning to that recipe. What do you remember from church when you were a kid? What stands out? Um, How it was just a really nurturing environment, an encouraging environment. We as kids were encouraged to participate in the service by reading, by being in the choir. I grew up actually in the suburbs of Denver, so I went to a predominantly white school And so on the weekends, I would go to church. So I had this kind of dual experience of being in the white suburbs, but still being connected to the inner city African-American population. So I thank my parents for being willing to continue those ties with the black community, even though we were living in the suburbs. Did you feel like an outsider to some extent then? I did, actually in both situations, because spending most of my time in the suburbs, I kind of acculturated to a white kind of mainstream culture, but I'm glad that got rounded out by having the Black experience as well. So I feel like I was negotiating between two different worlds and taking the best from each of them. What's another go-to recipe for you? 
All right. There's one from my church mother, not my actual mother, but one of my church mothers. Wait, what's, a, ch- what's a church mother? Oh, a church mother is somebody who's not related to you, but you think of her as a maternal figure because she is guiding you and she'll discipline you if you're out of line <laughs> when your mom's not around. Okay. And who is your church mother? So this church mother is Minnie Utsi, uh, who is no longer with us, but she is just a lovely woman and she is a great cook. And I love her cornbread recipe. And her cornbread recipe is pretty typical of African-American cornbread recipes because there's usually a certain amount of sugar. And if you're familiar with Southern cooking at all, one of the battle lines in Southern cooking is whether or not to put sugar in your cornbread. Because some Southerners say adding sugar turns it into cake. (laughs) But I have to tell you, almost every single soul food recipe I've ever seen has some sugar in it. How much sugar is in her recipe, in Minnie's recipe? A fourth of a cup. So not too much, but definitely noticeable. I mean, you've got to have seen hundreds, thousands of cornbread recipes. Absolutely. From all places. Yes. The fact that this one stands out, uh, that's remarkable, Adrian. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with the name of the recipe. It's never fail cornbread. (laughs) And I'm telling you, it's on point every time. You've never failed. Never failed. The only time I failed is if I actually tried to riff off the recipe and do my own thing. Don't try to change Minnie's recipe. I know, I know. I've learned my lesson. (laughs) Of course, we'll post this to CPR.org. Do you think cornbread gets put in a box? In other words, is it actually a more flexible food than just a side in, for instance, barbecue? So the interesting thing about cornbread, at least in African-American cuisine, is that it's often a necessary accompaniment to another dish. So if you look back through how African-Americans have eaten over time, sometimes there are quite a few cooks who would not have greens unless they had cornbread. And um, if you go back to the rural South, especially where people are really, really poor, a lot of times they didn't have utensils. So cornbread softened up in the broth of greens or other things actually does the work of a utensil because it solidifies everything and then you can scoop it up and eat it with your fingers. A lot of people back south actually have a dessert where they crumble up cornbread and buttermilk and then drink that. It also reminds me in like Nigerian cuisine of fufu, Mm -hmm. where you have a kind of thick paste and you use that to dip into your food as opposed to a utensil. Exactly. It's the same concept. So, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that having cornbread and greens was just an approximation of what West Africans were doing in their homeland and bringing it to a new context. Fascinating. Adrian, I looked up the mission statements of Campbell Chapel AME, and it says, we are a Matthew 25 church. Are you hungry? We feed you. It says in all caps, are you thirsty? We give you a drink. Are you a stranger? We welcome you. I love that food and drink are the first elements of your church's mission. Uh, Amen. Preach, Ryan, preach. (laughs) Well, I'm just bringing a voice (laughs) to the words that are created by someone else. But it seems like the perfect faith community for the soul food scholar, Adrian Miller. Absolutely. And if you look at the early history of the church in general, a lot of it was people getting together in homes and having a meal and talking about their experience. That's where the church really grows. It's really a potluck dinner religion in its earliest iterations. How about one more recipe from the cookbook, Adrian? 
All right. So this is the one that we kids fought over. One of my mom's desserts. It's called lemon icebox pie. And if you've never experienced the glory of a lemon icebox pie, it's very similar to key lime pie. So imagine mm. instead of the lime uh, custardy filling, you have lemon with a meringue, but then you have crushed vanilla wafers of the crust instead of graham crackers. Oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, man, it is off the chain, dude. Tell me about these fights. The biggest fight was who was going to be the first one to cut that pie. <laughs> because when it's set up, I mean, the way that the crust came together is kind of buttery. And, you know, you could stake your claim by the size of the piece you got, right? So we always wanted to make sure we got a decent sized piece. How many siblings did you have? So I grew up with four. I love that your own mother's recipe is in the cookbook. Oh, she has several. My mom was a good cook. And I don't know what it's like in other church cultures, but in black churches, when people are going through the line, with the serving line, they'll ask who made a certain dish. And that will determine whether or not they actually get a serving <laughs> or keep going. <laughs> it's the personality, not just yep. the food itself. Okay, the personality behind it. Now, the idea of an icebox pie, there's something so charming about that title too, huh? Yeah. So the way you make the pie is you actually cook it, but then you refrigerate it. So you cook the meringue and everything, brown it, everything, and then you put it in the fridge. And man, I'm just telling you, it is transcendent. Especially in warm weather. Mm-hmm. It's just a great summer pie. What do you think this cookbook says about your longtime church, Campbell Chapel AME in Denver, whose roots, by the way, go back to 1886? Yeah, we have been on the scene for a long time. Yeah, so I think this cookbook just reminds me of community. Uh, it's a very cosmopolitan cookbook. I mean, you would expect just maybe just soul food, but it's got recipes from other parts of the world. It's got uh, Native American herbal cures. And so it just reminded me of the loving and diverse community that I had as a faith community and how that had set me up for success in so many ways. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Adrian Miller of Denver is the soul food scholar. Back in June for our series, The Kitchen Shelf, he offered up a 1984 cookbook, Our Favorite Recipes, from Campbell Chapel AME Church. Recipes for greens, cornbread, and that lemon icebox pie are at CPR.org. A note that after recording this interview, Miller joined the CPR Board of Directors. As we head into break, let's hear one of his favorite spirituals. I'm going to sit at the welcome table, performed here by Hollis Watkins. I'm going to sit at the welcome table, oh Lordy. I'm going to sit at the welcome table one of these days, hallelujah. I'm going to sit at the welcome table. I'm going to sit at the welcome table one of these days. Restaurants around the state are closing permanently because of the pandemic. It's not just the loss of a business. Somehow, it feels like our memories of those places get shuttered, too. Back in the summer, we got nostalgic with Denver restaurant promoter and former restaurant owner John Imbergamo in our retro cookbook series, The Kitchen Shelf. And John, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. You brought a cookbook from 1982, recipes from some of Colorado's poshest places at the time. I wonder if you look back at that cookbook and think, gosh, 
Denver, Colorado, we were just less sophisticated then, you know? There's always been this wrestling with the Cowtown image. What do you feel when you look back? One of the things that drives me crazy these days is when people say, well, isn't it great that we finally have some good restaurants in Denver? You know, in, in 1982, we had a restaurant that I was involved with called Cafe Giovanni that was named one of Esquire's 80 best new restaurants in America. And we might not have had the number or the depth mm. back then, the depth in terms of cuisines, but we certainly had some great restaurants and places like Dudley's and Cafe Giovanni's and Cliff Young's and Hudson's, places like that were all spectacular restaurants. You mentioned Cafe Giovanni. This was in Lodo before Lodo's Renaissance. This is pre-Ballpark, pre-Wincoop, which is the brewery that catapulted John Hickenlooper to fame. Describe Cafe Giovanni. So Cafe Giovanni, first of all, I was a partner at Cafe Giovanni, important to mention that. And um, we opened in September of 1980. It was an upscale restaurant, very upscale restaurant. It was done mostly in greens, um, the color green everywhere. It seemed like we had the color green and green carpet. And we um, got many of the interior furnishings from a notorious Denver antique dealer who made a business in architectural antiques. And so all of these giant pieces of furniture and we had the walls from a, a bank in London that he had saved. And, oh, wow. and um, so all kinds of, it was very, it was a very classy place. You used the word elegant earlier. It was very elegant. And um, many of the dishes on the menu were things that just hadn't been served in Denver at that time. My partner, business partner, Jack Leone was the chef and we just were very different. It was also a very different time in Denver's history. The, the penny stock market was huge. And so there was a lot of money in and around Denver and the oil and gas business in 1982 was booming in Denver. And again, lots of money, lots of drinking wine at lunchtime and that kind of thing. So, I mean, this sounds like the set of Dynasty. <laughs> Possibly, possibly, although we didn't have John Forsyth that I remember. Um. <laughs> you mentioned dishes that Denver had really not seen before on its menus. Did that include uh, the recipe in this book, Escargot Maison? So we had two different snail items on the menu, and they were both cooked in papayote, in paper. So they were baked in, in a parchment paper, and they were monster sellers, and there probably were other restaurants serving escargot in Denver at the time. I can think of Cafe Promenade or, or some of these other places that were open at the time. But, but this one was different in that it was baked in parchment. Baked in parchment. And that's the recipe in the book? Yes. We'll have this recipe for escargot at CPR.org. I'm not sure, John, where today I would buy snails. I'm not sure where you got them back then. Well, snails come in a can. Interestingly enough, and they still come in a can. Um, Living are, or dead? <laughs> dead. Okay, just check. Dead, yeah, yeah. There are restaurants like Bistro Vendome and Larmer Square that serve snails in a much more traditional way, traditional French way, usually with garlic and butter in those little dishes with the indentations. But they, yeah, they come, French snails come in a can, always have. 
Okay, John, this next recipe is fascinating. It's from a breakfast place, the eggshell. And I think of all breakfast restaurants as kind of in vogue right now. I think of snooze and toast and jelly all in Metro Denver. But I understand that back then, something beyond the greasy spoon that had only breakfast, that was a new idea. This was a brand spanking new concept for Denver. It was first opened on Blake Street. Um, A guy named Buddy Waldman and his family opened the eggshell and it was revolutionary at the time. They introduced skillets to the market, you know, a, a pan with potatoes on the bottom and eggs on top in a variety of different ways. And they they just made it all the way across the country in, in a hurry. They were the predecessors to places like La Peep and Snooze and Toast and Jelly. And they ended up with three or four eggshells in town. And then um, the Waldman family kind of broke up and Buddy went on to, to found La Peep which ended up um, in quite a few states across the country. So, From the eggshell, you highlight our chicken pesto frittata. We'll have that recipe as well at CPR.org. It's so funny. I always feel guilty when I eat eggs with chicken. It just seems too intergenerational. <laughs> I love pesto, and finding it at breakfast is such a delightful idea, chicken pesto frittata. I understand, though, John, you have a pesto story for us. Well, my business partner, Jack Leone, who was the chef at Cafe Giovanni, put pesto on the menu in in 1980 at Cafe Giovanni, and and no one really in Denver had ever heard of pesto. And he decided on his own that pesto was going to be too pungent, too strong for (laughs) for Denver diners at at the time. So he made it into a cream sauce with pasta. And the biggest review you could get at that time was a magazine called Denver Magazine, not the last version of Denver Magazine, but a 1982 version of Denver Magazine. And um, the reviewer there was a fellow named Huntley Dent. He came in, had a great dinner, and the only thing he didn't like on our menu was the pesto cream sauce because he couldn't understand why we we would have done that to pesto adding cream to it. So it was hilarious. It's such a great example of what happens in restaurants all the time as we try to outthink our customers. So, Let's wrap up with a dessert recipe from The Lotus Room. This is how to make your own fortune cookies. Five fairly straightforward ingredients. But first, what do you remember about The Lotus Room? So The Lotus Room was a Chinese restaurant housed in a VFW building <laughs> on Spear Boulevard in the Golden Triangle. Wow. And it, it had been there for years, and it was a very traditional Chinese restaurant. And I just remember going in there with a party of eight one night for dinner. And, you know, I typically go out to dinner either with press or with other restaurant people. And so everybody had, you know, substitutions and modifications and things like that. And everybody ordered a whole bunch of different items. And We were being waited on by an ancient Chinese man who wrote nothing down. (laughs) He simply listened to all of our convoluted orders. And in the world of restaurants, my rule would be that you can only do that if you're taking an order for two. (laughs) Any more than two and you have to write it down. Yeah, I'm always 
super wary when there's a server who doesn't write stuff down because I'm the person who says no mayo and this on the side right. and this right. needs to be extra crispy. Uh-huh. Okay. We had no hope that we were going to get the food that we had ordered. And um, the food came out. He delivered every item to the right person in the right order with the right modifications and substitutions. It was, it was beyond imaginable how he did that. Well, John, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for letting me share some memories. John Invergama, former restaurateur turned restaurant promoter. For our series, The Kitchen Shelf, he chose the best of Colorado's gourmet gold, a cookbook from 1982. At CPR.org, you'll find recipes for escargot from Cafe Giovanni, that chicken pesto frittata from the eggshell, and homemade fortune cookies from the Lotus Room. More after a break, including brownies made from potatoes on Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back From Broken. And we've got a really special story available right now in your podcast feed. It's about a co-worker of mine who struggles with a mental illness that comes out of nowhere. So, yeah, maybe that meant pacing around Cheeseman Park, talking to myself. I'd been chasing you around that park for over five hours, maybe six. It's a story called Long Lonely Lake. Find it in the Back From Broken feeds on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Welcome. It's nice to meet you. In Aurora the other day, a smiling young couple opened their door to me. I'm Ryan. I'm Savannah. Hi, Savannah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm Jason. Nice to meet you, Jason. Do you want me to take my shoes off? Please. If you don't don't mind. Yes, I'm that person at home, which is why I ask. Savannah Rivka-Powell and Jason Cordova have in their possession a cookbook, one I've been very excited to see, as part of The Kitchen Shelf, our series about old community cookbooks hiding out in homes across Colorado. This time? It's Shalom on the Range, a roundup of recipes and Jewish traditions from Colorado kitchens. Shalom on the Range. What a great title. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) A friend of mine bought it at a used book sale from the Denver Public Library. And it's in a kind of binder like you might have had in school. Yeah, which makes it really easy to work with when you're cooking. Like the pages stay open. They really thought this through when they put this book together. And this is from Friends of Shalom Park, Denver, Colorado. Do we know what Shalom Park is? Shalom Park is a Jewish continuum of care organization providing residential health and social services to the elderly and their families. Oh, that's even better. (laughs) So how long have you had this book? Oh, for years? I'm trying to think um, at least five years. Yeah, somewhere around there. I think it was before we got to this house. What have been some of your favorite recipes from Shalom on the range over the years? The main one that is our go-to is for challah. It's a honey challah bread, which is very basic. And there's a lot of occasions where we want to make challah bread. Challah is a bread that's often eaten around Shabbat, the Sabbath. Yes, that's true. And on other Jewish holidays as well, which is part of the story behind this recipe. I have a really great memory. One of the first times I made it was near Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. Now, typically a challah, it's a braided bread that's made kind of in one long braid. And for the Jewish New Year, for Rosh Hashanah, what I did was I made a round challah. It was still braided, but it's round because of the symbology of the wholeness of the year. And then it also had honey, and I added gingered candy pieces in for like the sweetness. You want to have 
a sweetness in your coming year. Being not somebody who grew up Jewish, I've been really happy to learn about these traditions through Savannah. Why don't we read the page for challah? And this is one of the recipes we'll post from Shalom on the range. You, Savannah, have kept this cookbook in remarkable shape. I'm not seeing like butter stains and oil stains. Not all of my cookbooks are in such good shape though. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow I've been lucky with this one. (laughs) Honey twist challah. This dough can be used to make pletzel as well, which is another kind of bread. Yeah, and I haven't done that. I, I usually just stick to the challah. But what what I think is great about this is the visual aid uh, that they have on the page to help you figure out how to braid the challah. Right. It almost looks like instructions for how to braid someone's hair. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much the same idea, but tastier. And this is what we're going to make today? Yeah. This challah, like the one, the round one that I told you I made, it has a pretty epic story that goes with it that's also very Colorado. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, so Jason and I are involved with the Native American community because Jason is Native American. And uh, we went to a ceremony, a teepee ceremony, in which afterwards you are supposed to bring a dish for the feast. And it just so happened that this ceremony was around Rosh Hashanah. So that's why I decided to make the challah. I made the round challah with the honey and the the ginger pieces. And I was very excited to share that. And this challah was huge. It was very big. And even though there were so many people and everybody loved it, I think we ate maybe half of it. And one of our friends absolutely loved it. And I was like, well, you know what? You can just take the rest of it. And she was so excited and she took it and went home. And a couple days later, I got a message from her. And she said, yeah, you know, about the challah, <laughs> I got home and I live in the mountains. I left it in the back seat of my car and a bear broke into the car, like somehow got into the car and ate what was left of the challah. Your challah was so delicious that it attracted wildlife. Yeah. It's a bear with good taste. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to think so. Before we make the challah, can we flip through a few other recipes to check them out? One thing that challah is really good for is bread pudding. But that is like such a huge undertaking. I thought of doing it, but I'm not confident in my bread pudding making skills. But there's two different bread pudding recipes in here. With challah as the bread. Yeah, yeah. Challah is, I think, the perfect bread for bread pudding. So here, this is the really fancy one. It's bread pudding with caramel mascarpone cream. Wow. One loaf of challah. One half stick of unsalted butter, sugar, cinnamon, vanilla bean, whipping cream, lots and lots of eggs, and your favorite liquor. Yeah. The preface of this book is so sweet. Jason, will you read just those first lines? Why a cookbook? Because cooking is so near and dear to the Jewish heart. Because for Jewish people, food means sharing and love and nurturing and hospitality. And because... Great Colorado Jewish cooks tested and tasted delicious recipes collected from over 400 Shalom Park supporters. So this is a really great section of the book. They have Jewish blessings for all the holidays. The Hebrew is actually written out. Hanukkah blessings, blessings for the beginning of every holiday, blessings over wine. I think that's my favorite blessing. Yeah. So we have some of these cute local names, the Boulder Broccoli Casserole and the Denver Chocolate Cake. Oh, the Palisade Fall Fruit Salad, as in Palisade, Colorado. Yeah, there are a couple of recipes throughout the book that use the Palisade peaches 
which I love. Well, what do you say we make some challah? Yeah, that sounds great. Sounds good. Let's go. Oh, so we have to prepare the dough according to like these very detailed instructions that they have on page 71. Oh, there's a supplement here. Yeah, and and this is a yeasted bread, so we have to mix everything and knead it and kind of wait a little bit. Jason and Savannah are opting for a whole wheat flour. It sounds healthier, Savannah says. Yeast is added, eggs are cracked. They heat a delicious mix of water, milk, honey, and butter on the stove. Savannah adds her signature candied ginger, and the kneading begins. Okay, if it's possible to add more, I think it would be good to add a little more flour. Okay. Do you need a break? I can do stirring. I could use the exercise. You guys have such lovely cooperation. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> always. All the time it's like this. I, I promise. So it's getting close to when we can maybe work the dough. Beat it up a bit with our hands. Now we're kneading the dough. We need to knead. Kneading followed by braiding. Remember, challah is a braided bread. Then time to let the dough rise and into the oven. 30 minutes at 350 degrees. And my favorite part of a radio cooking segment, warping time past the baking and the cooling and getting right to the tasting of Savannah and Jason's honey ginger challah, courtesy of the Shalom on the Range cookbook. The bread is positively glimmering, the result of an egg wash. And then you can sprinkle something on top, sesame seeds. I like poppy seeds, so that's that's what I use in this case. Shall we give it a taste? Yeah, let's go for it. Oh, the honey. That is so good. And the ginger. And for this one, um, we got the ginger from an Asian grocery store. I believe it's a Vietnamese one off of Federal. And so the ginger's like sliced very thin, which is perfect, I think, for baking. I just got the bit of ginger. It's not too hot. It just has a nice finish. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's candied ginger. So it adds a bit sweet and a bit of spicy It would be dangerous to have this in my house. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it would last very long. Mm -hmm. Can I have a second piece? Definitely, yeah. (laughs) Well, guys, this has been fun and delicious. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this has been a good time. Jason Cordova and Savannah Rivka Powell of Aurora. Before the pandemic, we cooked together from Shalom on the Range, a roundup of recipes and Jewish traditions from Colorado kitchens. At CPR.org, find recipes for Palisade Fall Fruit Salad and Red Rocks Potatoes. And we will wrap up this kitchen shelf special in Divide, Colorado, west of Colorado Springs, where Jane Mannon scared us up a little treat. I made... Dark chocolate potato brownies. Dark chocolate and potatoes. That's not a pairing that I would necessarily dream up. Uh, Certainly not, which of course made the the recipe much more intriguing. But, you know, I, I feel like if you've got chocolate, you've got potatoes, you probably can't go too wrong because they're both two of my favorite things. The recipe comes from a charming 1980s cookbook called simply Potatoes, all caps with an exclamation point, sponsored by the San Luis Valley Potato Administrative Committee. I wondered if Jane Mannon had tasted her potato chocolate brownies yet. I have. Describe, um, describe how. It's good. Yeah. It's, it's got an interesting texture. I thought that the brownies would be a little bit more 
fudge-like, a little bit more chewy, and it's really a little bit more cake-like. Oh. But they're very good. I mean, we're talking carbs here, right? You can't go wrong. Exactly. That's kind of my feeling. (laughs) Now, you may think Idaho when you think potatoes, but southern Colorado's San Luis Valley is the second largest potato growing region in the country. More than 150 families farm spuds in the area. I couldn't resist playing a snippet of the Potato Committee's promotional video from their website. The voiceover is my favorite part. Potatoes. They've been your mealtime companion since you were a kid. You know how to cook them. You definitely know how to eat them. And you may think that they couldn't surprise you. But the people of Colorado's San Luis Valley beg to differ. You see, some of You get the point. Let's stick with the cookbook. Now, on the cover are several of the prepared recipes. Potato bread, a potato salad, and then I love that one basket is just raw potatoes. <laughs> just raw potatoes, yes. And you have craved these potatoes year in and year out, huh? Oh, yes. I love fresh potatoes. And very disappointingly, I don't get them in our grocery stores around here. So anytime I can get somebody to bring me potatoes from the valley, I, I do it. How about another oh, yes. <laughs> another recipe that stands out to you? Well, what I love, they give you a, a recipe for baked potatoes, which I guess I, I always thought might be kind of intuitive and, <laughs> and the basic mashed potatoes. But then they also give a quick fix potato idea. Boil as many potatoes as you need in a week with their skins on. Cool potatoes and remove the skins. Store in the refrigerator in a large plastic bag or covered plastic bowl. Use the potatoes throughout the week in any recipe calling for cooked potatoes. A real time saver if your family likes potatoes and you don't have time to fix them. Have you ever done this, cooked your weekly potato supply in advance? I have not. (laughs) I I don't know that I eat, you know, that I think that far ahead to know what I'm going to eat throughout the week. But by golly, they've, they've got it in the cookbook. We will post the basic baked potato recipe to CPR.org. Well, let's go back to these dark chocolate potato brownies that you cooked. Are they fairly easy? How, how was it? They include chopped nuts, four eggs, and a cup of mashed potatoes. It is an easy recipe. Of course, you know, you can't use mashed potatoes that are left over from dinner that you've added salt and butter to. So I did have to cook up a couple potatoes. The recipe calls for four squares of unsweetened chocolate. And I wasn't really sure what that meant. And so when you look online, a square of chocolate is actually one ounce. And so that was well over four squares of the bar that I had. But I used four ounces of chocolate and then used butter instead of margarine. Margarine was the suggestion, huh? Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Again, a product of its time. It reminds me of the kind of cookbook that you would get from a from a church where everybody brings in their favorite recipe. There's one for a San Luis Valley potato soup. Will you provide us that recipe too for the soup? The soup, the San Luis Valley potato soup calls for four medium to large potatoes two medium onions chopped, two slices of bacon chopped. Again, you can't go wrong with potatoes and bacon. (laughs) Two large celery stalks, uh, water, salt, butter, and milk. 
and you kind of put it all together in a kettle and cook until the potatoes are tender. I mean, this potato soup recipe, that, that just sounds perfect with winter coming. It does. And they have a, uh, a crock pot. If using a crock pot, do not add the milk until just before serving. So that's perfect. Jane, thank you so much for sharing potatoes, exclamation mark, with us. <laughs> you are so welcome. You're my little potato. You're my little potato. You're my little potato. They dug you up. You come from underground. Jane Mannon of Divide, Colorado, sharing her tuber cookbook with us. There are recipes for potato brownies, baked potatoes, and that potato soup at CPR.org. And if you have a Colorado community cookbook to share for our series, The Kitchen Shelf, take a picture of the cover and tweet me at CPR Warner. You can also email Colorado Matters at CPR.org. You're my little potato. You're my little potato. Dug you up. You come from underground. And that is our New Year's Day special with thanks in 2021 to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Paolo Chalcet. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. And things to eat like apples and cheese and nanas and cream. Jellies and butter, it's late at night. I hope this little bottle helps you go to sleep.